Welcome, guys and gals, to the Man Talks podcast. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Joining me today is Dr. Peter McGraw, and he's an associate professor of marketing and psychology at the University of Colorado in Boulder's Leeds School of Business. He's a behavioral scientist, and as such, his research examines the interrelationship of judgment, emotion, and choice with a focus on the production and consumption of entertainment. He directs the Human Research Lab, or sorry, Humor Research Lab. That's right. I said that right the second time. Humor Research Lab and is the co-author of a book called The Humor Code, A Global Search for What Makes Things Funny. His research has been covered by the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Time, NPR, BBC, and CNN. His work appears in the Journal of Consumer Research, Journal of Marketing Research, Management Science, Psychological Science, and the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. He is currently trying to kick a sweater vest habit. (laughs) Oh, man. He's currently trying to kick a sweater vest habit, even if it does get him kicked off the stylish scientist list. So clearly the guy's got a sense of humor. That's that's his official bio. Uh, And we are going to talk not just about... Uh, Obviously, we we touch on his book, The Humor Code, um, but we're going to talk and dive into uh, whether or not humor is something that we can learn, uh, how we can learn humor, how we can learn to be funnier, how it impacts uh, other people's perception of us and how it impacts our, our ability to thrive and survive in social hierarchies. The, we're going to look at the good, bad, and ugly about humor and how some people will use it for good, how some people use it for bad, how some people use it to uh, cope as a coping mechanism. And so uh, he's going to, Dr. Peter McGraw is basically going to help us identify how humor really impacts our social structuring, which is really actually quite in- interesting and intriguing. And then we're going to unpack some of the foundational principles of how to be more funny and what we actually find funny. He's got a very basic principle that we're going to talk about, uh, which is called the the benign uh, valuation. I think I'm getting that right. Um, but it's really, really interesting work, and it's very applicable to our everyday life. So whether you're looking to develop your confidence at work or in relationships and, and approaching people, uh, whether you are just looking to be a little bit funnier in your day-to-day life, or if you're one of those people who sort of self-identifies as like, oh, I'm just not a funny person, it's a little bit of BS. And so in this episode, we're going we're gonna to actually tackle that and uh, give you some helpful tools on how to be a little bit more funny in any social situation and uh, and how to identify what's funny and what's not. So really, really cool episode. Uh, I loved this episode and uh, I got a lot out of it. Plus, He's kind of he's kind of a character. Uh, he's really interesting. He's obviously a leader in his field. Uh, so before we jump in, before I bring him onto the to the podcast, really quickly, I just want to remind all the guys out there to head on over to Facebook and join the Man Talks community. We've got a few thousand guys in there, almost three thousand now, and uh, we've got some really really solid conversations, some weekly challenges, some great insight about relationships, about mindset, about finding your life purpose. You name it, we talk about it. Uh, And don't forget to man it forward, man it forward, share this podcast or head on over to Apple Podcasts or Apple Music 
and uh, subscribe. Subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Uh, leave us a rating. It goes such a long way to get us into the ears and into the phones of other people. And please, please, please share this podcast, whether it's this one or one of your favorites, with somebody you love and care about because it goes a long way. So thank you so much for sharing the podcast. And uh, without any further ado, I would love to welcome Dr. Peter McGraw. Oh, it's great to be here. So I'm going to kick things off today in the uh, in the normal fashion of asking you the the question that we ask all of our guests, and it usually brings in some incredible stories. So tell us a, a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. Uh, well, so let's see. So there's lots. Of, there fortunately there are lots of them. There needed to be in order to make it this far. I think um, I'll tell you one about one sort of recent. I'd say within the last, well, maybe now it's, it's uh, 10 years or so. So it still feels recent, however. So I, you know, I'm an academic um, and I go to these incredibly boring academic conferences. And one of the ways that I've made the, these conferences less boring is to put together a dinner with a group of close friends. They have affectionately named it the McGraw Dinner because I organize it and I have very strict rules and it, it becomes an event, a, a showpiece, show, showcase kind of thing, piece for the, for the conference. And there's always eight of us. It's like the perfect number, one conversation, but enough people in, in there. And one day I was looking around the table and listening to the conversation sort of step back. I had this sort of realization um, about the folks. And these are, these are very accomplished people. You know, these are professors at Yale and, uh, at Stanford and, and, you know, at these elite universities. And I was listening to the way they talk and I realized that they sort of, they had, they held a set of attitudes that I didn't hold. And I had this sort of moment where I thought, well, why not me? So the, these folks, um, they're very nice people. They're hardworking. They're incredibly smart. They're well-trained. But they just had a perspective that things were going to be working out for them. And that when things didn't work out, they were really quite aggressive in seeing that they would. That they had this sort of expectation of good things happening to them. And I had realized that I, you know, I came from, I come from kind of an underprivileged background and, you know, I'm at a state school and I went to a state school and, you know, I, I kind of had this narrative in my life of being kind of the lucky one, you know, the one who made it out. And what I realized was that I had a different focus in the world, something in, in psychology we call a prevention focus. But I also worked hard and I tried to make the most of my opportunities, but I did it because I wanted to avoid bad things happening. I didn't want to slip back into poverty. These folks had what we call a promotion focus. That is, they worked hard. They saw things through, not because they wanted to avoid bad things, but because they wanted to approach good things. And it was just that moment in time that I thought, well, why not me? Why can't I be like that? And that set me down a path of trying to be more like them to be more promotion focused and to put my kind of interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting how our, how our past, you know, <laughs> it's funny. I was having a conversation with my parents last night and I think I said those exact same words 
about making it out. You know, like I made it out of there because I grew up from a small town in central Alberta in in Canada and, and definitely not from a, what would you would call a, a privileged background, but, you know, <laughs> escaping there definitely is like, has its own mentality that you, since you've made it out, you've sort of quote unquote made it as far as you're going to go. So I, I, I love this perspective that you, that you've brought in and, and, and that you sort of notice. So, yeah. So thank you so much for sharing that. And, and what, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on this podcast is because, not only because I saw your TED talk and I thought, what a, what an interesting concept, but, but to really dive into some of the work that you've been doing at the Human Research Lab and, and some of the work that you've been bringing forward through the book that you created, The Humor Code, uh, A Global Search for What Makes Things Funny. Because uh, I've really seen you popping up all over the place, you know, the last few years. And I think that this is some incredible work. And so I'm curious to hear the sort of origin story, like what got you actually interested in the first place about researching humor as as a behavioral scientist? Okay, so I think a few things went into it. One thing was I had to be kind of, I was sort of primed for the opportunity. That is, I had kind of learned from, so this was about 10 years into my career that I stumbled on this question of what makes things funny. And around that time, I had been doing a lot of reflection, thinking about my career, thinking what I wanted my middle years to be like. And one of the things that I had realized was that I had been early to the game with regard to a lot of research topics that I had worked on. And then I saw that as a, as on one hand, difficult, right? So when you start doing research on something that's not well studied, there's a lot of extra work that you have to do. But the upside of it is, you know, like business being early is often useful because you get to kind of form a category. You know, you get to be a leader and people and, and people will end up sort of following what you've done. And, and in science, that's no, that's no different. And so I had realized that I had been early to the game with regard to some of the topics that I had been studying. For instance, I, I had done a bunch of work in graduate school and, and, and thereafter on mixed emotions, on whether people can feel happy or happy and sad at the same time. So I had that, that kind of recognition. I was, so I was always, I'm always on the search for that thing, that, that topic that no one's studying yet is, is pervasive, is important. The second thing was that I realized that I, I didn't have a family. I didn't think that a family was likely to be, to be, um, in the cards for me. And I knew that I was going to have time and energy that maybe other people wouldn't. And so I was actively thinking about, well, what would I use that time and energy for besides like taking naps, you know, <laughs> which are nice. Uh, <laughs> I do enjoy a nap. And in, in any case, so. So that was sort of the setting, you know, I was undergoing all this reflection and, and realizing things about myself and, and considering long-term plans. And then I stumbled on this question. And the way I stumbled on the question was, was pretty mundane, actually. I was, uh, I was visiting Tulane University. I was giving a, a dry-ish academic talk on what makes things wrong on a topic that I had been studying for a while there, looking at moral psychology. And of course, I want to try to be entertaining in my talks. And so I used a provocative example of a moral violation that was designed, I picked it because I thought it would be entertaining. And it was, uh, the audience chuckled at the example that I used. 
And uh, a faculty member, a professor in the back of the room, raised her hand shortly thereafter and said, you know, you just have been telling us how moral violations cause anger and disgust, and yet we're laughing, we're experiencing positive emotions. Why? And that, that question, um, I, I did not have an answer to that question. I had never read a paper about what makes things funny. I didn't know what made things funny. And yet I valued humor. You know, I kind of, if you had asked me, I would have said I pride myself on being a funny professor, not a high bar, but still. And I came home and thought about it and, and convinced one of, uh, one of our star graduate students here at CU to, um, to write a paper on this topic. And it obviously blossomed now 10 years later into this kind of life changing choice. Hmm. That's pretty, that's pretty cool. I love the, the origin story of that and how it just came out of, yeah, this like very natural space. You know, one of the reasons why I actually wanted to have you on here is, is because I saw your TED talk. I think I said this before we actually started recording, but I saw your TED talk and at the very beginning, you had mentioned something along the lines of that you were going to have people turn to each other and, and tickle each other. And it just like got this huge roar out of the audience and I thought, you know, this is so interesting because it's that's such a simple, um, almost like seemingly like mundane way to get a joke out of people. And yet there I was, you know, finding myself laughing. And so I really wanted to dive into not only not only like how we use humor and, and where hu humor is in the world, but what are some of the things that we can learn? And maybe we can start here, actually. What are some of the things that we need to learn and, and understand uh, from the world's, you know, maybe funniest people? Like, because I'm assuming that in, and just from doing some some background research on you, you've done some research on on some funny people and, and really started to dive into what makes them funny. So as a, as a sort of normal person, <laughs> that's, that's not a, not a comedian has never done stand up. Um, what, where do we start? Like, well, how do we, or what can we learn and take away from the world's funniest people? Yeah. So I, I appreciate you asking this because this is, this is, I think kind of the, the next thing that I'm, I'm going to devote a lot of time and effort to, um, cause really what, what primarily I've been interested in is, is answering this question, what makes things funny? And there's a lot of questions that follow that. But one of the questions is, how do you make funny happen? And I think that the people, the professionals, um, are a really interesting place to start. Because these are people who are committed to a craft in the same way that a, you know, a novelist is or a film director is or a musician is. And... I think that there are, are really valuable insights that you can glean from those, from those people's habits. Cause I don't, cause one thing that I do know having studied humor is it's like, yes, there are people who are naturally funny and professionals are more naturally funny than, than you and me. But you know, that only gets you so far, you know, so if you use a sports analogy, Someone might be a great athlete, but that doesn't mean they're a great basketball player or a great baseball player. You have to actually work on the craft in order to utilize those kind of natural talents. And so uh, I think that there's, there's 
going to be revelations in terms of diving even more deeply into their craft than I have than I have thus far. Um, and I think it'll be a little bit fun too, which you know is important. Yeah, yeah. So how do people like? Where do people start? Because I think you know this is such an uh, applicable skill that I think a lot of people are often asking themselves how do i how do i curate this like how do i be funny on dates and how do i be funny in the workplace because humor really does seem to be and i'm not too sure if this is something that's come up in your work but there does seem to be a certain level uh the, almost like a certain correlation between humor and charisma and humor and confidence and it seems to be this attractive feature that both men and women have it, have expressed really appreciating and being attracted to any other person. And so, and, and, and even that, uh, some of the research that I've seen about um, public speaking says that the, the number one thing you can do in your talk is make the audience laugh within the first 30 to 45 seconds. And so humor seems to have this really pivotal component to our society. So how do we start to to, to bring up your original question, how do we start to curate that in our lives? Like what, what is funny and how do we start to identify that? Um, okay. So I would say before, before we tackle that question, we should, we should be pretty clear about the benefits and costs just for a moment, because I actually think, uh, I, I think there's a tendency for, for people to focus only on the positive sides of humor and to, to ignore the potential downsides. So, so you've already addressed some of the, the positive ones. So, for instance, we see funny people as smart. We see them as likable. They, they cut through the clutter. Their messages are, are more persuasive. They're more memorable. And in that way, you know, and, and so in that way, like, who doesn't want to be funny? You know, whether it be on a date or whether it be during a training session or giving a public talk. People really, really value this experience, right? Amusement is, it's arousing, it's positive. Um, it's something that people pay for. And if you can give it to them for free, they're super appreciative. Um, and, and especially in a world where there is often isn't much comedy, training sessions, staff meetings, even public talks, right? So, so people crave entertainment. And then obviously they like to be surrounded by people who are amusing, not only because those people are entertaining, but actually those people have the potential to make life a little easier, a little better. So, you know, funny people can help us cope with the, the bad things in life, right? So the, the bad things in life actually are the best, uh, the best fodder for comedy. And so when someone can make jokes about the bad things in life, it can actually help transform those things into less bad things. Now, the downside, of course, is that we don't always succeed in our humor attempts. So that's fine if you tell a knock-knock joke and you kind of get a groan from the audience. The real downside is that, that a, a poorly executed joke can, can really push people apart and can offend people and can bully people. And, and, and so there's a, there, there's a real downside to this. Um, and then there's also the, the potential downside of the person who's always making jokes. That is that they, they can seem silly. They can seem like a clown and seen, be seen as a non-serious person. And especially in the workplace, there are moments where you have to set aside levity, you know, in, in order to be serious, right? In order to, to get things done. And so a sensitivity around 
understanding who your audience is and understanding when the right context for, for jokes are, I think it ends up becoming important and can inform whether you decide, oh, this is something I'm going to try to up my game. And the question of upping your game is a really hard one. I, I spent a long time contemplating how you might try to make the world a more humorous place. That is, how do you get people the skills to, to be funnier? Uh, so my first thing is, well, you should probably figure out if you're the type of person who should try to be funnier. And so to do that, I actually put together a survey that gives people their comedy style. So this guy, Rod Martin, has a, um, a survey that looks at people's comedy style. And it, it mixes basically whether you're self-focused or you're other-focused and whether your comedy style is generally positive or generally negative in tone. And so if your listeners go to understandinghumor.com, this is like a 30-question survey. It'll basically spit out a number, you know, a set of numbers that say, hey, your kind of affiliative style is really good, and you should think about trying to be funny more often. Or it might say, oh, your style tends to be negative and other-focused. This tends to be aggressive. You know, you don't, want to, you don't want to turn the volume up on that at work. Right. Like, let's keep that in the locker room, perhaps. And so so that's the first thing is kind of to segment and to understand what, you know, is your style one that's going to play well with others, especially in a professional environment. Then the second thing I think is, is the is to start to 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 do what the professionals do, which is to experiment. You know, that is to sort of try things out and see how it goes and to kind of. Keep notes on how it's going. Um, are your jokes landing? You know, are they not? And then to recognize that it's as much as comedians complain about the audience, really, it's not the audience's fault when something's not funny. Um, it's to be aware that, you know, the audience is the judge. They get to decide what's funny or not. And you're just doing your best to, to hit the bullseye. And so to to really own those comedy attempts and to know that when they don't land, it's because of you. And when they do land, they're also because of you, right? So that's the upside of it all. And as I like to say, the third thing is, <laughs> is to be quick to apologize, right? That is just to be like, hey, if something doesn't work, just say, I'm sorry, that didn't come out the way I wanted it to. You know, people are surprisingly good at, a, at accepting a, a heartfelt apology. They're not very good at at um, accepting the fact that you blame them for not laughing at your joke. Yeah. Do you feel like, I mean, this is, this is really interesting because I'm curious now as to whether you feel like there are certain types of humor for certain types of people. Like there's all these behavioral uh, tests that people can do like Myers-Briggs and whatnot to, to really identify their own personality types. And I'm curious to, as to whether or not you've seen sort of a correlation between the type of humor that people use and, and their sort of personality. So like as a, you know, as I'm thinking about myself in, in high school, because I was quite the joker in high school. And and that was, you know, kind of keeping the the limelight away from the fact that I was really struggling academically in high school because I didn't put a lot of time and effort into it. But I was I thought it was funny and I could get a laugh out of people and it would sort of circumvent attention away from my lack of academic prowess. And so um but I was kind of like that like typical jock, you know? And so mm -hmm. is there is there a correlation between almost like that that 
identity type or character type and the style of humor that they'll use? Well, so I think so. I, so I'm not sure I would call it personality type. I would, so I'm, you know, some of my training is in social psychology. And so the, the sort of the world of social psychology is sort of highlighting how context can override personality. So for instance, like extroverts are more likely to, to, you know, to try to be funny in, in a group setting than an introvert, you know, those kinds of things. But the way I tend to think about this is, is to think about comedy as a tool. And it's one that people might be aware of how they're using it, or they, it might be unconscious how they use it. So, um, I'm working, uh, right now with, with that same grad student. So many years ago that I got started on this, he's now an assistant professor at Arizona, Caleb Warren, and a management professor at the University of Melbourne, Adam Barsky. We're, we're actually writing a paper about humor and well-being and how people, how humor affects our lives. So we kind of use three categories. One is hedonically. Another one is in a utilitarian sense. Um, and then the last one is socially. And, and the idea is that depending on how you use it, humor can help in those three areas of your life. So it can help you live a more pleasurable, enjoyable life, hedonically. It could help you with problem solving, pers um, persuasiveness, et cetera, utilitarian, or it can help you with your social relationships. And so when you think about you being a class clown, you know, your use, your use of comedy, uh, was designed, you know, directly or indirectly to sort of, uh, kind of hide or diminish or, or detract or distract from this other part of your life, right? Where you're struggling. And so you're not succeeding in the classroom, which at some level you probably cared about. And so your way to succeed in the classroom was to be popular mm. and to be subversive which as we know, high school kids love. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so, so, you know, your, your choice, that tool. Now, of course, that comedy as a tool worked for you in some ways, but then it also had a downside, right? The getting in trouble, having to go to the principal's office, mom or dad being disappointed in you because you're not being like the good kid. And so you're kind of having to engage in this trade off that came with your style, your particular style of, uh, you know, of comedy. Now, what I, my question for you is what kind of class clown were you? Because mm. right? there, there's not just one form of class clown. Yeah, that's, uh, I was, the, oh man, how would I describe that? I think I was like the interjector. I'm not too sure if that's like a, an actual classification, but I was the, I was the <laughs> guy that would sort of piggyback off of other people's commentary. Like they would say something and I would make a joke about their comment uh, or, or something that they had done. And that was my, it was sort of like pointing out these awkward or, you know, seemingly benign or funny social situations, uh, and then turning them into a jokes, in, into a joke. Or, so that was one. And the other one was innuendos. I loved using in, innuendos for some reason. Right. Yeah. Well, so, you know, th this is, um, well, both of those are, are kind of, they're, they're kind of good. Uh, they're good situations by which to create comedy in a classroom, right? You know, so, so finding something that's a little bit awkward, or, you know, about an interaction. And then, uh, the other one, obviously, innuendo is great, right? Because there are all these taboos that exist in the classroom among, you know, mm -hmm. teens. 
things you shouldn't be talking about or thinking about yet, you know, uh, you know, in mixed company, in polite company and so on. And so how do you create that situation where you're using a play on words, you know, you're kind of titillating the audience. You're not saying the bad thing. You're saying the close to bad thing, which ends up being really humorous. Nice. Yeah, I, I like it. So in your in your book, I think this kind of brings me to my next my next query, which is, you know, in, in your book, The Humor Code, you one of your chapters is called How Do You Make Funny? And I'm curious if you can unpack some of that. I know that that's a pretty big subject, like how do you create humor? But, you know, you mentioned before experimenting and, and writing some things down. But what are some of the markers of things that we as human beings find find comical and find funny? Right. So, okay. So to answer that question, um, you have to first answer, I believe you have to first answer the question, what makes things funny in the first place? Mm. That's something that, that we have a great deal of evidence for now. I'm, I'm pretty confident that we have a, a, a pretty good explanation. And the short explanation is this. We laugh at, we're amused by things that are wrong yet okay. Things that are threatening yet safe. Things that don't make sense yet make sense or as we call them in the humor research lab, benign violations. So, so it's, it's benign violations that are the things that are, that are amusing. They sit in this sweet spot between things that are completely wrong and things that are completely okay. So we use this sort of Venn diagram to illustrate this, where the intersection is the, is the world of, of humor. And so that explains, for instance, the two ways that a humor attempt fails. Right. You bore people. The situation is just benign or you offend people. The situation is just a violation. So so what do funny people do? Well, they find a way to transform a situation that's benign into one that's a benign violation or they find a way to, to transform a situation that's a violation and, and, and turn it into a benign violation. Right. So they're either moving it. They're moving it into that sweet spot. Interesting. Now, what's yeah. Now, what's interesting and. Even more interesting, I think, is like, what are the strategies that you use to do that? So like sarcasm, for instance, right? So my guess is, is that was part of your repertoire as a, um, as a class clown. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Right? That was a, that was a go-to. Go-to, of course, right? Because, <laughs> because what you're essentially doing is saying something bad about someone, but saying it in a way that is clearly not true. Mm -hmm. right? Or conversely, you're saying something good about someone, but in a way that is clearly not true. Right? So, so you have both of those appraisals wrong yet. Okay. I'm saying something bad, but I don't really mean it. I'm saying something good, but I don't really mean it. Right? So, you know, double entendres have that same kind of element to it. Right? So, so telling, um, uh, we use this example in a, a paper that we that we published telling a baker that he has nice buns <laughs> you know it's it's funny right it, you know it's funny because you, you know you you can easily say oh i'm referring to your bread pot products not your backside yeah. you know so what happens is that people who are good at being funny are good at pointing out what's wrong with the world in a way that we see how it's also okay huh it suggests for among the professionals you know that that they have these kind of two levers that they're able to pull the wrong lever and the right lever, you know, the, I'm going to make this more okay, or I'm going to find a way to make this more wrong. We call the first one 
the Silverman strategy, right? So Sarah Silverman finds a way to turn a hate crime into um, something that's hilarious, you know, putting it to fun music and using this cute, non-threatening voice, for instance. The other, the other one we call the Seinfeld strategy, right? So finding what's wrong in the things that are normal in the world, right? You know, so Jerry has a, has a bit about like how chocolate chip cookies are a son of a bitch, you know, like, you know, these things that are, seem to be okay and benign are actually like, yeah. Like, you know, really awful things. Like the you know? like the uh, plug in in the airplane bathroom where he's like, "Are people actually shaving in there?" Ex- yes, exactly that kind of thing. You know, so you think about it is that you know Jerry got really famous with a show about nothing, right? A show about everyday life where they just basically point out all the things that are wrong with our everyday lives. Mm-hmm. So, so, so I think that's like that's the basic. Now, do com- comedians aren't they don't care about the benign violation theory. You know, they don't care about theory at all. They just have really good instincts. And then they have procedures, you know, processes that they use to mine the world for comedic material, which that's the stuff that I think is, is really interesting because now what we're talking about is we're, these are tradespeople. You know, these are craftsmen in the same way that a, that a plumber has tools and a way to go about solving problems, mm. you know, figuring out where a leak comes from. You know, they have a process that they've learned as an apprentice or a painter has techniques that he or she uses to get shadows right or perspective correct. And um, and in that way, these comedians, these people who seem like they're just so, such naturally funny people, have a lot in common, you know, with great artists and great problem solvers, and scientists and entrepreneurs. So, uh, I mean, this is this is cool because it's uh, the it's the benign violation that I get that right. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, this is interesting. So, how do things like because there there seem to be some things that that turn into that almost become viral, you know, like I, I've turned on in the last, you know, year, like 12 months, I guess you could say, if you turn on any late night to, you know, talk show, of course, they're, they're talking about Donald Trump. And he seems to be like his whole candidacy in some way to most of those platforms seems to be like one giant benign violation. So how do things become like viral in in sort of like the mainstream consciousness around around humor is it just based off of the same principle that that's catching people's attention on a on a national uh on like a national level or is it all is it always playing into that same piece like is there an explanation behind that yeah so i think you know late night television has had a resurgence in part because of the the current political climate so if you think about it so first of all not everybody's laughing at these late night shows yeah of course yeah Right. So they tend to be liberal focused. Yeah. Right. So they, you know, so if you're, if you're on the left side of the spectrum, this stuff is funny. If you're on the right side of the spectrum, it's insulting. And that's because it's just a violation if you're on the right and it's potentially a benign violation if you're on the left. Mm. Right. So these individual differences can't be ignored. Right. It's why, 
you could tell a joke and one person is bored and one person is offended and one person is laughing because their view of the world depends on their culture and their mood and um, their political beliefs and, you know, it, and a whole variety of things, right? How much sleep they got the night before, which shows, which demonstrates how difficult it is to be, to be funny mm -hmm. um, and how important it is to know who your target market is. Now, these late night shows of Seth Meyers and Samantha Bees of the world, they know their target and they, and they keep going back to the well, in this case, um, you know, the presidency. Now, what makes this stuff viral, I think, is interesting. And so, so first of all, to make it viral, it should be funny, right? It has to be entertaining. Like people are seeking out these positive arousing experiences, especially with viral content. It has to be stuff that people are willing to share, right? So things that are really highly sexual don't get shared, for instance, even though they're positive and, and arousing because by sharing, people are saying something about themselves. Right? Mm. So when you when you when you put up a Seth Meyers um, closer look on your Facebook post, you're you're saying something about yourself. You want people to to know something about you, and so that limits some of the things that people put up and and encourages others. What I think is really fascinating is there's been a bunch of research, for instance, coming out of Microsoft Research Labs that shows. The really viral stuff is the stuff that's kind of most newsworthy. That is, it's, it's actually stuff that's not shared, I tell two people who tell two people who tell two people, but rather there's stuff that that's, gets the attention of a quote-unquote big mouth, right? So, you know, someone on Twitter who's got lots of followers or CNN or uh, the New York Times or funny or die, right? Someone who has lots of followers that this stuff gets broadcast out to. And so for that stuff to reach lots and lots of people to get to receive uh, the benefit of a big mouth, it has to be novel, right? It has to feel new and fresh. It has to be super effective at what it's trying to do. So it can't just be kind of funny. It should be really, really funny. And so it has to have a particular profile in order to make it into the world of I don't know if virility is the right word, but, you know, to be to become extremely popular, right, for millions of people to learn about it in a short period mm -hmm. of time. Nice. Nice. Okay. And so that kind of brings us back to part of where we started in the beginning, you know, which was really around the, the world's funniest people and understanding you know, what they, you, you kind of started to talk about Jerry Seinfeld and, and him looking at the, at the benign and, and really basically building a career off of seemingly nothing, you know, talking about these, these very basic things. And so, mm -hmm. so what can the, the everyday person, the non-comedian, the, you know, the, the professional, the entrepreneur, the executive, what can they learn from these comedians about themselves, about their everyday lives and, and basically about how human beings function? Yeah. So I think the first thing that, that, you know, us normal people can do is take a tactic that, that the professionals use, which is professionals are professional observers. That is that they are, they're vigilant about what's happening in the world. And they, they're on the lookout for things that are kind of naturally funny to them. They're on the lookout for when people laugh at the stuff that they do and say. And they're, they're sort of constantly looking for kind of opportunities, you know. So 
it's it's really difficult to find a comedian who's not always writing stuff down, whether it be in their you know in their notepad or into their phone that they're constantly making observations. So I'll give you an example of this in my own life. I have a I have one of these like United Mileage Plus cards, credit cards, you know, like club cards, and you know, my uh, Chase who who um, administers it wants to be fancy, and so the card is like made out of metal, okay. And so I give it, you know, when I when I hand it to, it doesn't happen much anymore because you don't have to hand it to a to a, a cashier anymore. But when I hand it to a cashier, sometimes they'll they'll kind of like feel like like sort of move it up and down and say, eh, "This car is really heavy." And one day I I said, "Yeah, it's because I owe a lot of money on it." <laughs> <laughs> right? You know, so so this obviously, you know, it's like. Obviously, that's wrong, but it has, you know, we talk about being in debt and the weight of, you know, debt and so on and so forth. And it, it gets a laugh. And I did it again and it gets a laugh. And so now that's like a go-to joke that I use, you know, just to have a little bit of fun in life, you know, with this kind of mundane transaction. And I think that if I wasn't paying it, if I didn't live the world that I, in the world that I live in, I don't know if I would have even noticed that much that that thing was funny and that it might be in some way reusable. Um, so I think that the first thing is that notion of being observant, right? So looking for those, those moments that are funny and then being aware of where, where and how they're occurring, right? Are they occurring in your, the emails that you send or the texts that you have or the conversations that you have, or, you know, what are the jokes in your talks that sort of work and don't work kind of editing as a result? As a, as a result of that, and knowing that it's um, that it is a little bit of a systematic process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. What's that? I was just gonna I was just gonna add one thing there. I mean, it's interesting because I I recently saw Jerry Seinfeld live, and he was talking his whole he had this whole bit about cell phones basically taking you out of the of the present moment, and it was and it was hilarious. But I think it really speaks to how observant and how present comedians must be in certain situations to be able to witness the sort of banality of certain situations within life that we often just completely miss. So that just, it triggered that memory for me. So um, yeah, I just wanted to add that in. Yeah, totally. And you know, the, so the other thing I would say is I've become a huge fan of improvisational comedy. And the reason that I have is that besides being fun, and besides being funny to me, what improvisational comedy does is it teaches you a small set of rules that are not just good for creating comedy, but they're good for life in general. And so I think that if someone's trying to kind of wants to exercise their funny bone, taking an improv comedy class is a super useful one. So, so you know, most people know this kind of yes and rule associated with, with improv, which is find a way to um, validate what the other person in the scene is saying or doing and try to move it forward, right? So yes is better than no, right? So, and then yes, and, and, and then yes, anding is better than just yesing. But there's all these other elements to improv. So there, for instance, there's this notion of gifting. So in, in improv, you gift your, your partner by giving him or her a piece of information, a nugget, something that they can use to play on. Mm. And so it's this very cooperative, collaborative thing. And, we, and, and so 
we have a tendency to hold these sort of stand-up comics in very high regard, but they're doing theater, right? So they're just broadcasting one way. They're just talking to the audience and the audience is taking it in. But in most of our lives, in your life as a, as a class clown, for instance, it was a two-way thing, right? You were interacting with other people yeah. and you were building off what they said and what they did. And most of the comedy in our life really has that element to it. It's not giving a talk in front of 2,000 people for, for Ted. It's, it's being in a meeting and, and interacting and playing off with what someone else does. And in that way, improv, I think, is a very useful place to start. It's actually one of the best places to start if you want to try to improve this thing, this, you know, sort of this skill, right, this aspect of your of your life. Nice. Very cool. Well, I know that we, uh, I know that we're, we're running on short on time here and this has been a ton of information. I mean, I personally have learned a lot and I'm sure our listeners have learned a lot. I would just have one last question and then we'll, we'll sign off because I think all of this has sort of led me to the, the belief or the sort of presupposition that humor is something that we can learn or humor is something that can be taught. Is that something that you found through your research? Yes. So, I think there's a tendency. So, so the funniest people in the world like want you to think that it's magic and they're the magician. And I get it, you know, but really when you think about it, we humans are able to learn incredibly complex skills. I mean, and, and, and a sense of humor is a complex skill. It fits that, but you know, people are able to learn to play piano and serve a tennis ball and become good public speakers and do calculus and yeah, some people have a head start. You know, this is something that they are, um, they're better at than others, but we can all get a bit better. And the way you do that is the same way you get better at anything else, which is you practice it and you seek feedback, right? That is you, you, you see how it's going, you know, you get better at doing it. So you practice and you look for feedback in that way. I like to think that having a theory helps. So if you understand the benign violation theory, that may be able to cut the learning curve, right? Because it's like, well, people aren't laughing. Why are they not laughing? Is this too benign? Is it too much of a violation? And then you know whether you should be more like Seinfeld or more like Silverman mm. as a result. Nice. No, I think that's that's really helpful. So um, again, thank you so much for joining me on the on the podcast today. Some incredible information. And uh, I really appreciate the work that you're doing. So thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Connor. And for everybody else that's that's out there listening today, I would head on over uh, to Peter's website and check out some more of his work. Uh, Peter's going to be actually launching uh, his own podcast. What's that going to be all about, Peter? I'm going to be peering into the lives of the world's funniest people. Oh, it sounds sounds horrible, man. Sounds like it's going to be <laughs> <laughs> sounds like it's going to be awesome. I think that's some really cool work. So you can go to petermcgraw.org. Uh, we're going to have that link in the show notes below, so you can go check that out and head on over to either his website or Amazon and definitely check out the Humor Code. Uh, great book and some really great research uh, around around humor. So if you're one of those people that's wanting to learn more about humor, wanting to learn about more about being funny or how you can just interject that into your in your dating life or into your work life or your business or whatever that looks like, definitely recommend checking out this book. So until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Mm-hmm.